Welcome to Startup Hacks, a We Global Studios podcast. We explore the stories and secret strategies that women entrepreneurs use to save time and money when bootstrapping and building their businesses. I'm your host, Fernanda Carapina, and today I'm so excited to welcome Deborah Benton. Deborah is the founder and general partner at Willow Growth Partners. Willow provides early capital to entrepreneurs building the next generation of transformative consumer brands and the disruptive technologies that power them. In 2014, Deborah launched a family office investment vehicle focused on seed stage consumer brands and enabling tech companies. Welcome, Deborah. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate the invitation. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you on the show and be able to dig deep into your fabulous work and um, all that you have done. So let's start, if you don't mind, by giving our listeners a little backstory on where you grew up, how you got started as a professional in the investment business. Oh, gosh, yes. I took a pretty circuitous route to uh, the investment side. No intention of ever ending up on the investment side, actually. I spent the vast majority of my career as an operator. Uh, I came out of business school, um, spent the required few years in management consulting, which was a great experience just to build up the toolkit, um, but really wanted to be hands-on um, and knew I wanted to be on the operating side. Uh, and I, I was very fortunate. I joined um, one of my clients from the consulting world had joined eToys, which was a very, very early on uh, leader in the e-commerce space. And he had joined as CFO uh, and he managed to connect me to the right people. And, and I was very fortunate to be able to join uh, eToys in, gosh, I think this was 1998. Uh, the company was a kind of a rocket ship. It was the very first wave of e-commerce, um, and I was hooked. I was really hooked. Um, that was, you know, just an exhilarating experience. I was there when the company went public. I was there when the company was delisted. I was there in March of 2000 when, you know, the financial crisis hit and everything kind of fell apart. Um, but I was really hooked at that point in the early stage, and, and particularly the opportunity to work in the consumer space um, and, and work in a way that was very close to the consumers themselves. And that's what e-commerce provided. It really disintermediated a lot of the middle ground that stopped consumers from directly interacting with brands. Um, from there, I, I spent the next, uh, gosh, probably 20 years operating. Um, I spent some time in um, a more traditional physical role. I was running a $100 million P&L for a company. Um, but really missed the early stage excitement and fast growth uh, and the digital ecosystem. So I returned to the um, uh, e-commerce side in 2009. Uh, I joined Shoe Dazzle, which was an online women's shoe and fashion company in 2009. Um, was there for a few years, terrific stint, absolutely prolific uh, founder of that company. And then left and joined um, an online women's fashion company called Nasty Al. Uh, and was there as the president for a few years and grew that from 20 million to just under 100 million. But uh, through the course of, of, of my experience, particularly in the digital world, and I had been part of the problem, um, I, I saw that there was uh, an opportunity to improve uh, the way that brands were seeking capital, how they were thinking about it, and, and who and what was the right type of capital to help them scale. 
um, there was a big dislocation, I think, at that point, because you had mostly uh, tech investors that were really pouring money into these digital brands and expecting them to scale in the same way a SaaS company would scale, uh, which is just not the case. So I left, uh, I left operating in 2014, uh, set up this family office and invested out of that vehicle for uh, about six years. I did 15 investments, took a lot of board seats um, because of my operating background, helped out the, the founders quite a bit, which I thoroughly enjoyed. Uh, and during that time, just saw that there was a dearth of institutional capital available, particularly at the early stage, where these companies really need the capital, but truly also need some operating expertise and strategic guidance to help them scale in the way that they'll be ready for the next financial sponsor and eventually scale with high integrity. So they'll be ready for an eventual exit, whether it's through M&A or perhaps even going public. Mm -hmm. Wow. Well, that's such an impressive um, backstory and um, history. And, and I know you've worked in so many different areas of the industry. Can you talk a little bit about what you see are some of the typical missteps sometimes when founders are building their businesses that later circle back and become a big problem when they enter a stage where they're scaling? Yeah, I mean, I would say it, I would structure it at the different stages of the business. So Willow, uh, our fund Willow, which is focused at the seed stage, it's really the first institutional stage of capital. Generally, these companies are raising two to three million dollars. They're post-revenue, post-launch. Most of them have probably raised some early capital maybe 500,000 friends and family, an angel round, um, you know, some, some small syndicates, maybe some small family offices have participated. It even, so it, the, 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 the challenge that I find, even when we come in that early, these companies are generally doing one to $5 million in revenue. Even at that stage, which is very early, if they have structured the capital raise incorrectly before us, it already is an impediment. And generally that means that they have raised that prior capital at too high a valuation. Mm -hmm. And it, what it does is it, it creates a rippling effect where at some point there will be a day of reckoning. At some point, you know, some, sometimes they can raise at too high a valuation or maybe they've raised too much and they've taken on too much dilution. Um, but at some point, you know, they're going to they're going to reach a fork in the road where the next financial sponsor will say, there's just no way that this can be an up round and maybe this can't even be a flat round. We need to really recalibrate. And that's that's often where there's, you know, a recap, uh, which is really unpleasant for for everybody. So when I talk to founders um, and this this is predominantly around fundraising. I encourage them to really think about the path that they want to take. This is their business. They should have some sights on how they want to scale this business and what what the what does success mean to them? What does it does it mean, you know, having a family business? Maybe don't ever raise outside capital or maybe just raise raise friends and family capital and then you don't have the kind of pressure uh, that outside investors bring because they have their obligations to their investors. Um, but if you are going to raise outside capital, really think about your scaling path, really think about 
how you're going to exit, where you think that exit's going to be, and, and try to map out your fundraises and this and how you scale your biz, your business so that they correspond to one another in a way that it is constantly in positive momentum. That, that sounds very complicated, but essentially the message is, please don't raise too much too early at too high evaluations. It might mean that you have to go out in 15 months rather than 18 months for your next round, but you will have made a lot more progress. You will be able to raise at a higher valuation. You will take on less dilution. So it might be a little bit more work, but you'll keep your options open and it will be a consistently positive forward-looking momentum, if that makes sense. Right. No, it does. It makes perfect sense. In the event that there are listeners who are not as familiar with some of these terms, would you mind describing what you mean by evaluation or an up round or a down round? Yeah, absolutely. So when you when founders go to raise capital, um, they have to create a a basis of, of, of worth of the entity at the time that they're raising capital. And that's called enterprise value. So you, you, you know, maybe a founder has launched a business and they've been operating for 18 months and they've had great success and they've scaled and they're doing, you know, they expect to do in 2021, a million and a half dollars in revenue, phenomenal success, you know, really, really on their way. And they say, oh, you know, I really think if I took in some external capital, I could grow this much more quickly and much bigger so that even though I'm taking on some dilution, even though I'm I'm selling a part of my company, my ownership, even though it's less, will be worth far more. That's the only reason you, you, you take on external capital. That's, that is truly the only reason. You believe that the pie will be much bigger and that your ownership, despite the dilution, will be worth more. At that point, you decide to take on capital. Uh, you and your financial partner need to come to agreement in, in what the enterprise value is of the entity before they put any money into the business. And that's called a pre-money valuation. That's, that's valuing the business. Uh, once the money comes into the business, uh, then it's called, you know, it's the pre-money plus the money coming into the business called a post-money valuation. Got it. And do you find that um, based on your own experience with with founders that it, there's a, a tendency to overvalue a company because there's always it, it's always a hardship to kind of put a dollar value on your company, especially early days. Um, and it would be great if there was kind of a magic formula that would give you that information, but there's not. <laughs> But do you find, because I think a lot of founders are petrified of undervaluing their uh, company. And do you think that there's really no reason to be so concerned about that? Or or do you think it's a balancing act? I think it's the latter. I think you should only ever get into business with a financial partner, an investment partner that you trust. And I think it's a very, very open and candid conversation that you should always have. Always, you should have the discussion of how are you valuing this business? What does that mean? How long is this cash going to take us? Meaning you have to know what your monthly burn is and your anticipated cash burn is. What do we think? Where do we think the business will be in 18 months when we run out of cash? And at that point, when we go out to raise our next round, 
how are we going to be valued at that point? And does it all make sense? Like I sit down with our founders and we, we map it out. We're not always right. Sometimes the business grows far more quickly than we anticipated. And we actually have to do a bridge round, happily so, um, before the expected next priced round. Um, so it, it's not that it always goes according to plan, um, but I'd say it, I would really encourage founders. I would say probably one of the biggest mistakes I see with founders is they don't have probably what they perceive to be difficult conversations. But honestly, if you're getting into partnership with, with the right investment partner, they should be open to having all of these conversations, all of them. What does the investment partner want for an exit? How What would be successful to them? Because they have to report back to their own investors. Does that align with what the founder wants? How do you, the two of you see this path? How do you see this scaling projecting forward? Again, it's not always going to turn out exactly how you both sit down and model it out, but at least you are aligned on the general understanding of how this business is going to scale. Um, in terms of valuing some of these businesses, the 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 more mature the business, the easier it is. There are mm -hmm. comps. There are both public comps and private comps for uh, businesses within specific categories, um, different stages where they're at, whether it's a Series C, a Series A, a Series B. Uh, the the probably the most challenging time to really value a business is pre-launch. A lot of businesses do raise money pre-launch. That's that's challenging because you're you're really investing just on the founder and the idea and the opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't do pre-launch, um, probably particularly for that reason. There's just not enough data to to really look at what's going on. Um, so that's probably the most challenging time. But once you launch and once you have revenue and once you have some early operating metrics, especially in in my world, in consumer brands, once you have early operating metrics around cohort analysis and margin profile and unit economics, um, cost of acquisition, the, you know, there's there's a handful of very key metrics. There are great comps out there. I, my frustration, frankly, comes in because I think uh, at the pre-seed level, pre-launch level, um, some of these founders are, t are taking in capital really at just a too high valuation that when I see it and they've launched and they have six months of operating data and they're doing $200,000 a month in order to get an up round, which is essentially what everybody wants, including your early investors, because they took the risk. I just can't get there. It just mm -hmm. can't be justified. And so they're already at a really difficult place and it's challenging them to find funding. Yeah. Um, it's probably the best way that I can answer that. Once you once you have operating data and revenue, whether you are a tech company, a SaaS, a software company, or a, a physical kind of consumer brand or CPG, there are a lot of comps out there. Now there's a wide there's a wide berth, there's a wide variance as well, but at least you know kind of what kind of multiples are within reason. So let's talk a little bit about Willow Growth and what your investment thesis is, and a little bit about your company. Yeah, Willow Growth is um, it is it is simply an extension of how I was investing as an individual for for many years. Uh, we focus at um, on the consumer brands. Ninety percent is focused on consumer brands, and the brands are generally in the categories of beauty, health and wellness, skincare, apparel and accessories, 
home and pet and food and beverage. Uh, we, are, we are very focused on companies that are values led. Uh, so they, 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 are, they are building and selling and distributing superior products, certainly that bring joy to their consumers' lives. But they're, they are also built on, um, I'd say, pillars of values that go beyond that. And, and it could be many things. It, it could be sustainability in the materials that they use for their products. It could be in ethical production, how they manufacture their products. It could be in diversity and inclusion, who they're marketing, who they're building and marketing their products towards. It could be in democratized access to better for you. Mm -hmm. um, so there are, there are many, we, we are quite agnostic in, in what those values are, but in general, we believe that these, the brands that, that we invest in are going to make the world a better place. So that's kind of very important to us on the, on the qualitative side. Uh, clearly the founder and the founding team is, is uh, of utmost importance. Uh, alignment in values uh, with us, alignment in how we think these companies should, should scale, and frankly, the value that we can bring to the table. And then on the uh, quantitative side, post-revenue, post-launch, uh, one to $5 million in revenue, we look for very strong uh, margin profiles. We invest predominantly in digital native brands. They all find their way into the real world, but they usually start online. Um, and I'm pretty familiar with the margin profile requ required to make a profitable business uh, online. And you need to have a very strong product margin. Uh, and then beyond that, I'd say um, we look for strong engagement at the community level. So companies that are building kind of cult-like followings, very strong communities. Um, we look at the ratio of paid to unpaid acquisition. We obviously like a lot of unpaid acquisition because that means it's natural word of mouth, which is very healthy acquisition. Um, we look at repeat rate and conversely churn. Um, and we will look at very strongly at unit economics, which take, which you know basically looks at all, your margin profile combined with your cost of acquisition and your lifetime value expectation. And now the company, um, now that you have, to, you've invested in was it fifteen companies to date? I invested as an individual as in fifteen companies in Willow Growth Portfolio. We now have eleven. 11. Okay. So as you, as you kind of look back in, in the days where you were starting Willow Growth and, and building that business yourself, were there certain strategies that you used in order to gain a competitive edge against other similar um, entities and looked for certain strategies on how you might save money or preserve your time or become more efficient, heighten your productivity that you'd like to share? Yeah, what a great question. You know, keep in mind, I went from an operator, you know, probably managing a company of 100 plus people to starting a fund where there were literally two of us. <laughs> so yeah. it, was, it, was, it was a very, very big adjustment. Um, uh, and you do, you, ha you have to learn tips and tricks. You, you have to learn um, how to kind of maniacally prioritize. I've, I've always been, I would say, very good at focus. Um, I'm very goal-oriented and I'm hyper-competitive. So once I knew, once I had clearly defined the goal, 
getting there, it's never easy. It, trust me, it's never easy, particularly because we raised this fund over Zoom during COVID. Um, at the, but but I, I, knew the, I knew the finish line. Uh, and so I, I think, again, as a former long-term operator, you learn to be very structured. Um, you learn to you learn to prioritize, um, and honestly, I'm able to sit at my desk for 15 hours at a time. <laughs> that always helps. <laughs> well, I think many people don't really appreciate how who aren't founders don't appreciate how you have to, you know, use guerrilla tactics in order to be able to do just about everything, especially in early days where you have limited resources. And that's it's a great skill, but it's also can be really difficult in terms of how to be efficient with your time. Yeah, I, 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 I very much agree. Um, I, I think um, time management, um, and I'm a big advocate of actually um, creating plans for yourself. Um, um, you know, allocating time out. I work very much by my calendar. Um, I plan my calendar. I look, I look in advance of my calendar. I adjust my calendar. Um, because when you don't have leverage and you know, you've just, you're going through this as well. And certainly when you started at the very early days of what you're doing, mm-hmm. um, and you have one, maybe two people, the most valuable resource you have is your time, even above capital, the most yeah. valuable resource is your time. Um, so I, I, you know, if, if I could encourage anybody who's listening, you, you yourself and, and your time and you as a resource is the most valuable thing that you have and, and never underestimate that uh, and, and just create a little structure, structure over it. I'm sure everybody's experienced this. If, if you don't have that, it's very easy how the day just goes by. Yeah. Like the day can just fly by and you're busy. You know, you can be doing a bunch of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't get any, I really didn't get anything valuable done. Mm-hmm. That's the worst for me. And, and I, I, you know, of course, there are days when I experience that. But if you take just, you know, 10 or 15 minutes in advance of your day or even the night before, and certainly on Sunday when you're planning out the week, I find that that's tremendously helpful to, yeah. to and, and that guides you throughout the week. Yeah, 100%. Um, I wanted to remind you of something you had shared with me in a conversation that I thought was really, I mean, on the face of it, you think it's obvious, but it's it's really not. And I think it's really powerful. And that was about the importance of building a Rolodex to date myself, right? Um, <laughs> starting Starting back in the college days, I look at my own daughter who's in college and think about her incredible reach, both now with social media, but also her friends and think, God, if you could just put that in a bottle and just keep growing it for another 20, 30 years, it's, it's a huge service. So can you talk a little bit about that? It's priceless. Uh, and funny you say that because I was just talking to my son who is a rising junior at Colgate this morning. And I was talking about this, this exact, um, you know, phenomenon. And, and he, while he, he somewhat appreciates it because I, I've talked about it so much, you know, the power of a network and not just a network, but building relationships mm-hmm. and building mutually beneficial relationships wherever possible. Obviously, when you're just starting out, you may not have a ton to offer, but frankly, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Figure out a way to make yourself valuable so that, so that there is a mutuality to, to the relationship. Um, 
But yeah, I, I didn't do it, to be perfectly candid. I didn't even, I was working so much. Um, you know, I finished business school and worked um, constantly, had, had two kids and, and just kept working, working, never focused on building these relationships and building this powerful network. And frankly, when I moved to the investing side in 2014, although I was I was quite connected because I had been um, an e-commerce senior operator for many years. So of course I knew a lot of people, I had hired a lot of people, but there were, there were so many people in other aspects of, of the world that I really wanted to connect to and learn from and have a relationship with that I that I had never nurtured. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a huge regret of mine. And I think now if I could give any advice to um, to young entrepreneurs or, or even students, I think it starts, I, I really think it starts in college. I mean, if it can start earlier, great. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I, I'm not advocating some superficial, like go and collect as many contacts as you want, because that's useless. That's right. truly useless. And honestly, it's kind of offensive. But really build relationships with people that you enjoy, you admire, you have shared values with. And the best way to do it is to figure out how you can help them. Figure out how you can help them. It will it will always come back. And even if it doesn't, that's fine too, you know? Um, but, but the power of um, a network, I am astonished at. I'm astonished at. I could not agree with you more. And we're running out of time, but I'll just add to that, that I, I personally think that when you're single, whether you're uh, an entrepreneur or whether you're working in a corporate environment, it's almost a little easier because you're so socially driven. But I, I almost feel like there's a cliff that happens when you get married because you become so much more insular and it becomes about, you know, your partner and your, ch and your children. And then I think that once you leave corporate America and you decide you're going to start your business, it's such a cliff because yes. you no longer have sometimes things to offer people in the business community who can't sell to you anymore. So it is yes. really important to nurture and feed those relationships, even if it's just once a year, you shoot out an email or you grab coffee because um, you just never know where people land and what kind of collaborative opportunities may have come otherwise. Absolutely. A absolutely. Um, yeah. I, I, I wish I had started earlier. It's look, everybody kind of uh, gets to it at different times in lives, but um, you know, if I could encourage people early on in their professional lives to start doing this um, and, and even, even allocate certain time to doing it. Um, the other thing I would suggest uh, very strongly is I think, um, I think you're right, Fernanda. I think that that is a critical time when women in particular tend not to focus on building their own networks. Um, funnily enough, I don't think men have that challenge. I think they've been exceptional at building their networks and utilizing and leveraging their networks. Um, and women have really fallen behind there. And so what I'd encourage everyone to do, and it doesn't matter who you are or how junior or senior you are, I think if, if all of us spent 15 minutes, you know, allocated 15 minutes every single week to somehow lifting some other woman up in some way, helping a phone call, mentoring, making an introduction, whatever it might be, uh, we can kind of get exponential effects from that. 
Yeah, 100%, which is also one of our goals with We Global and to facilitate that in a supportive environment. So unfortunately, we're out of time, but I wanted to make sure you have an opportunity to share um, a link or some information about where our listeners can reach out to you or learn more about Willow Growth. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. Uh, Our website is willowgrowth.com. Go and check it out. You can follow us on Instagram at willowgrowth. Um, I'm Deborah Benton. Feel free to connect to me through LinkedIn or I'm Deborah at willowgrowth.com. I would love to talk to you. Perfect. Thank you so much, Deborah. So appreciate you being on the show. Thank you, my friend. Thanks so much for having me. So tune in next week for more Startup Hacks. We have another great show you won't want to miss on the secret female founder strategies that will save you time and money when building your business. This podcast is brought to you by We Global Studios, the first startup innovation studio and digital do-it-yourself startup platform for women entrepreneurs around the world. For more information on our guests, this podcast, and many other female founder programs, please visit weglobalstudios.com. I'm your host, Fernanda Kirapina, and we will see you next week.